Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Would you turn in your Bibles tonight to Exodus chapter 34? We're going to start with verses 6 and 7 out of Exodus chapter 34. Don't worry, I'm not lost. I know we're in the middle of a series on Jonah. We will get to Jonah, but we're going to start first in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, where the Bible says this. The Lord passed in front of Moses, called out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Let's pray together as we get started tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're here with us. You didn't leave us alone. You allowed us to have communication and relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that as we spend time in your word tonight, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this room. Speak to us. Allow us to hear something that is greater than text. Allow us to experience your spirit, bringing life to the truth that is in your word. We need you. We trust you. That you have good plans for tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I am so thankful that my God is slow to anger and he is filled with unfailing love. It is one of his best attributes. Can we talk about where this verse is and why God is saying this? So two chapters before this is when Moses is walking up to Mount Sinai and he is going to receive the law. He is up there with God as God is speaking to him word by word, the Ten Commandments and the laws of Israel. And he's going through this. And while he is going through this very important conversation with the God of the universe, the rest of his people, all of the Israelites, are down at the bottom of the mountain and they are waiting. And the children of Israel get tired of waiting, and this kind of crazy thing happens. Now, if you have a very crisp memory, you might remember from the very first week of this series, we talked about the evil king Jeroboam, and he was the evil king that Jonah was a prophet to. And in the story we told, we talked about how the evil king Jeroboam set up idols around Israel, including idols of the golden calf. Well, if I go all the way back to Exodus chapter 32, that's where I find the first golden calf. And if you look and you read this carefully, you're going to see that Aaron and the people that are waiting on Moses while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, they kind of start off with what I'm going to give them a little bit of space here to be fairly good interest, good motivations, good ideas. And their idea is, you know, we don't know if Moses is coming back and we're used to worshiping idols and we don't have an idol for this God who just saved us out of Egypt. The God who rescued us, we're not sure what he looks like, but since we're waiting on Moses and we're a little tired of waiting on Moses, what if the God of Israel looked like a cow. Now, you may not find that flattering, but in their time period, they did. A cow was a symbol of provision and power and strength, and so they decided, why don't we go ahead and make an idol, and we're going to create the body 
of this God that we've been worshiping. So they donate all of the gold rings, all of the gold jewelry, and they put it together and they make this golden calf. And then things start really getting out of control. So they have this big party to throw this together. There's music, there's dancing, and then people start getting drunk. People start taking off their clothes, and things go crazy. And while they're going crazy, Moses is now walking down from the mountain with, in his hands, the first draft of the Ten Commandments. Did you know that what's in your Bible is not the first draft? It's the second draft. So he's walking down the mountain with the first draft of the Ten Commandments. He sees what's happening. There in this very short period of time, the children of Israel have fallen into idolatry and drunkenness and sexual sin. He sees all of this happening, and he's so mad that he throws the Ten Commandments. They crash there on the ground, and we have to figure out what to do next. Well, when God sees this, God has a very strong response. We've been learning about Jonah, and we've been looking at the very strong response that God had towards the people of Nineveh. Last week, we talked about walking into a wall of God's justice, and I want to read what God's response is to what's happening here and compare that to what God said to Nineveh. So in Exodus 32, verse 9 and 10, God says, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. This feels very similar to Jonah's five sentence or five word sermon. We talked about it last week. Jonah preached a five word sermon. It was yet 40 days Nineveh overthrown. You are about to walk into a wall of God's justice. What's different about this verse is God is not talking to foreigners. He is not talking to people who don't know him. He is talking to the people who do know him. He's talking to the children of Israel, and he says, your sin is so wicked. Stand back. Leave me alone. I'm going to destroy them. This sin is so out of hand, so egregious, it must be punished. The people of Israel are running into a wall of my justice, and I'm going to wipe them out. So Moses intercedes. He comes to the people, he corrects the people, and he puts them on a path of repentance. And then Moses goes, and he finds two unmarked tablets, and he starts walking up the mountain towards Mount Sinai, again, hopeful. He is hopeful that this can be worked out. He is hopeful that God is not about to kill all of his people. He is hopeful for a second draft of the Ten Commandments. The Bible says that when Moses came to the mountain, God came down and descended on Moses in a cloud and talked with him. Can you imagine this experience? And I, I imagine that for Moses in that moment, it was more terrifying than it was fantastic because he's walking into this go going, is there a way that this gets put back together? Is it possible that this God is the kind of God that forgives? Now, what does God say? God says exactly what we read in our opening verse tonight. This is God's response to Moses walking up and asking for forgiveness from his people from these terrible sins that they've committed. This is what God says. I'm going to read it again in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, he's saying his own name, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger 
and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. God forgives. He renews his covenant with the people of Israel. It is intentionally and beautifully poetic that the Ten Commandments that you have in your Bible are not the first draft. They are the second draft. I think that every single person in this room who's had the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, to know him, to trust him, we understand because our lives are written as the second draft. None of us got it right the first time, but because we have a God who is slow to anger, who is filled with unfailing love, he's allowed you to write the second draft of your story, and he is a God of the second copy. Every child of Israel would have known this story. They would have known that God is a God who is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. They would have known the story of repentance and forgiveness that was given to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. Every Israelite would have known this, including our really good and slightly difficult friend, Jonah. So let's go to Jonah chapter 4. In Jonah chapter 4, we find a grumpy, sunburned man camping outside of the city limits of Nineveh. Chapter 3 ended with this powerful and unexpected revival in the city of Nineveh. Jonah preaches his five-word sermon, and the whole city repents. The king repents, the animals repent, and any other prophet would be dancing in the streets celebrating this amazing thing that, that has happened. It's like if you took the violence and oppression of North Korea and China, and then you mixed it in with the sexual sin of a Las Vegas in New Orleans and put it all in one place, and then someone walks into that city preaches a five-word sermon, and everything turns around. If you were that person, if you were that evangelist, you would be sharing things on social media. You'd be sharing out video testimonies. You would be celebrating the amazing things that God has done. This is not Jonah's response. Let's see what his response is in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. What change of plans? Well, God changed his mind and decided to forgive the people of Nineveh rather than destroy them. And he, Jonah, became very angry, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are, hold your breath here, a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Do these words sound familiar? They should. They should. I, I, I want to put them side by side. So in Exodus 34, 6, God says, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And then in Jonah 4, 2, he says, you are merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Jonah is quoting Exodus. Jonah is quoting God to God. He says, when you forgave the Israelites, you told us that you were slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. And now I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew who you were. I knew what you would act like. I knew what you would do. And now after I preached my five-word sermon, you know what happened? Exactly what I thought was going to happen. You bullied me into preaching and now these people who I do not want to see forgiven have been forgiven because you are slow to anger and you are filled with unfailing love. And so you know what? This is Jonah's response. Uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Just kill me now, Lord. 
I would rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. You said you were going to destroy them, and then you changed your mind, so someone's got to die. It's either kill them or kill me. I feel like I've had this exact conversation with a three-year-old in the cookie aisle of Myers. Someone's going to die here. I'm either going to get what I want, or I'm dying right here on the floor this is it. And it's going to be loud and it's going to be embarrassing for all of us. This is what Jonah is laying in the aisle at Myers saying, kill me now, God. This is it if I don't get what I want. At this moment, as I have done many times with someone who is losing their minds in a grocery store, God takes a breath And God begins what we're going to call tonight a brilliant (laughs) counseling session with Jonah. Through the rest of this chapter, God is going to ask some really pivotal questions. He's going to share a really unique illustration. And he's going to do what he can do to help Jonah have a better understanding of grace. Now, I'm going to warn you, it doesn't go well for Jonah, but... I think it can go well for us. If we believe that there's a little bit of Jonah inside all of us, then I believe that God wants to counsel us into a better understanding of grace. And as we watch God counsel Jonah, we can jump in on this counseling session and let God transform our hearts tonight. So here's the first question that God asks. In Jonah 4.4, the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this. Now, Jonah doesn't verbally respond, but his answer seems obvious. Yes. Yes, it is right for me to be angry. The people of Nineveh are evil, violent, wicked people, and it is right for me to be angry that they are not being punished. It is right for me to be angry at my enemies. You know, as hard as we've worked to kind of create a three-dimensional picture of the people of Nineveh during this series, I think there's something that is unfair about our judgment of Jonah's response when we're talking about Jonah's enemies. Why? Because the people of Nineveh are not your enemies. The people of Nineveh have been dead for over 3,000 years. None of those people killed any of your family members. And it could be fairly easy for us to sit here as Jonah decides to not forgive and to be angry and hateful to these people, for us to sit here in 2022 and say, I wouldn't have done that. I would have been a loving, kind, perfect, beautiful person and not have made the mistakes that Jonah made. And I think the only way to even the playing field between us and Jonah tonight is for us to swap out his enemies for our enemies, which leads me to the question, who are your enemies? Oxford Dictionary defines enemy as a person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. This isn't just sitting on the sidelines and hating someone. This is being actively opposed, someone who is working towards your demise. In the setting of holiness, I think we can think about our enemies through the lens of sin. So I could say it this way, the person who has hurt you with their lies is your enemy. The person who has hurt you by stealing from you is your enemy. The person who has hurt you by committing adultery is your enemy. The person who has hurt you by their jealousy and pride is your enemy. The person who has hurt you by their anger and violence is your enemy. If we're going to allow God to counsel us 
it's important that we stop thinking about the Ninevites and we start thinking about our enemies. And so let's go back to question number one and try it again. Is it right for you to be angry about this? And let's not think in general terms. Let's think very specifically. Who is the enemy that you are thinking about? What did they do to you? And is it right for you to be angry about that? Jonah's answer was yes. Yes, it's right to be angry. So God then continues this counseling session with a very unique illustration. I want to read through the illustration that God uses as God is working to get Jonah to have a better understanding of grace. Jonah chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 says this, And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm, exclamation point. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. This is what it felt like for me to grow up in Phoenix. My favorite word in this passage is the English word arranged, it's translated from the Hebrew word munah, which means to prepare or to ordain. This word actually appears four times in the book of Jonah. The first time's in chapter one, when God says, the Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. The other three times are in the passage that we just read. The Lord arranged for a leafy plant. The Lord arranged for a worm. And God arranged for a scorching east wind. God is leading every step. We can laugh at Jonah's attempt to be one step ahead of God, but yet we can easily fall into the same habit ourselves. God has arranged your every step. He has arranged your victories, and he has also arranged your trials. Why did God arrange for Jonah to have this plant for shade only for it to be taken away? This is all leading to the second question that God's about to ask in his counseling session with Jonah. We find this in verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Did you notice that this second question is really similar to the first question that God asks? His first question was, is it right for you to be angry about this? Is it right for you to be angry that I chose to forgive the Ninevites rather than see them perish? And the second question also starts with, is it right for you to be angry? But he's swapping out the subject of what we're angry about. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? And again, Jonah answers, yes, I love that plant. It was really warm, and the plant gave me shade. I found joy in that plant. So yes, it is right for me to be angry that the worm came and destroyed my favorite plant, it is right here that God makes this grand attempt to shift Jonah's thinking and to get a better understanding of grace. I believe that God wants us to move into a better understanding of grace. So let's watch what God tells Jonah in the last verse of the book of Jonah, the last verse of chapter 4, verse 10. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great 
sitting. Can I take that verse and rewrite it for us in 2022? So this is the Dan Wooten 2022 version. It goes like this. Then the Lord said, you are angry that gas is so expensive. You are angry that your dishwasher is broken. You are angry that someone else got the job that you wanted. You are angry that the Brewers lost to the Cubs last night. But the Milwaukee area has more than 1.5 million people, not to mention the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? (sighs) That hits me. That hits me, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would work through us tonight. Can we talk about the animals? So God continues to exaggerate the story. The storyteller continues to, continues to exaggerate the story by talking about the animals. So when everyone in the city repented, who repented also? The animals. The animals fasted. And now he looks and he says, I'm the God that I'm sad. I am heartbroken when I see a sparrow fall from the sky. If I'm that God... How much more do I care about the 1.5 million people that live in the city of Milwaukee? If you want to get angry, there are some things that are worthy to be angry about, and then there are other things that are not worthy of your anger. If you're going to get angry about losing your favorite shade tree, you definitely should get angry about losing souls. You definitely should be passionate about the 1.5 million people that live in our City, it's a strange question to close this message with, but here it is. What are you angry about? You know, the word anger appears five times in this chapter, and there's only ten verses in the chapter. What's unique about the theme of anger in this last chapter is that it's not always a negative attribute. So we learn that God is slow to anger, which is a positive attribute. We could all aspire to adopt that characteristic, to be a person who is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love. Then we see Jonah's anger, and Jonah's always angry at the wrong things. He's angry that God did forgive the Ninevites. He's angry that his plant isn't doing well. But then there's this third type of anger where God looks and he says, I see 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh, and they're about to perish and pay the price for their sin, and they have never once had someone walk into their city and tell them about a God who is slow to anger and who is filled with unfailing love. They're about to perish, and no one has ever given them good news. That makes me angry. And in his anger, this amazing thing happens because God's anger becomes a motivation for his love. And it's two emotions that you wouldn't expect that would go together. But in a godly anger, someone who sees unrighteousness, someone who sees a lack of justice, that in that frustration, that passion, that anger, that that would then move someone towards love. And when God gets angry about seeing 120,000 people perish in the city of Nineveh, God's love comes into action and he goes and harasses this unwilling prophet to go preach to them that they might hear good news, that they might be saved. I think when we think about our city, I think there are some good things for us to be angry about. I think we could be angry about the amount of people in our city who have never heard the name of Jesus. I think we could be angry about the kids in our city who do not have a positive male and female role model in their lives. 
I think we could be angry about drug addiction in our city. I think we could be angry about the suicide rate in our city. I think there are ways that God would trigger our anger to trigger our love. In our family, we have a rule that there are only two things. This is for my kids. There's only two things you're allowed to hate, and that is the devil and sin. It's the only thing. So in my family, with my kids, you cannot hate broccoli. So... (laughs) You cannot like it. It could be your least favorite. You could loathe it. There are many words you can use to describe how little you like broccoli. But at our kitchen table, you're not allowed to hate broccoli because I want to save hate for the things that are really worthy of being hated. I hate sin. Sin hurts people. It damages you and it damages the people that are around you. Sin disconnects you from God for eternity. I hate sin. I hate the work of the enemy in this world, that he is out here. He is the prince of this earth, and he is working to tear people away from relationship with Christ. I hate the enemy, and then that's it. I want to reserve my hate for the things that are really worthy of hate. I want to reserve my anger for the things that are really worthy of anger. And when you think about the things that make you angry, I hope that your holy anger is a catalyst for love in your life. I hope that you see things around the city, in your families, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods that just tick you off. And when you get mad to see sin in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, that your anger would wake up your love. In this story, there is basically nothing that we want to emulate Jonah. I want you to emulate what God does in this story. When God sees a city that is hurting, his anger activates his love, and he gets up and he does something about it. And he makes sure that these people have a chance to know good news. He makes sure that they know that he is a God who is slow to anger and who is filled with unfailing love. Amen? Father, we thank you that you're with us tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. I pray that in our thinking, even right now, we would meditate on some of the things that can cause our anger to flare up. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us if we have been angry at the wrong things. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to keep our eyes up and out. Allow us to see the 1.5 million people that are living in our community. And when we see sin or destruction or violence, I pray, Lord, that you would allow a holy anger to trigger our love. And we would do what you did and find pathways, reach out, make a difference, and make sure that people have the opportunity to know your son. I thank you for this room tonight. I thank you that you're with us. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to just give us your mind. We need you. We are not enough without you. We need you to guide our steps. I think a lot of us were thinking about some of the opportunities that are going to exist in the summer, things that can be ministries that happen through this church, ministries that happen outside of this church, things that are ministries that are organized, and things that are just organic of a conversation to walk across our street and speak to one of our neighbors. I pray that your Holy Spirit would make us wise in all of those things. 
I pray, Lord, that you would give us a bravery that is much stronger than our fear or our nervousness or our anxiety, and that that bravery would be a fuel to us. I pray, Lord, that your creativity would be in our mind, allowing us to think in new ways and to be a solution-oriented people when it comes to your gospel. We need you. We're, we're, we're crying out to you, God, that you would do a miraculous work. Holy Spirit, let it be. Let it be, Jesus. Let us see a revival come to our city like it came to the city of Nineveh. Allow repentance to come to our city like it did to the city of Nineveh. That people might know you. We want to see your compassion be poured out over the city. We love you. We need you, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.